There was a day when the radio was really important in America. And there were some really key voices that I think most of us know. Take a, take a listen to this voice, if you remember him. Click on the next slide, Rylan. You know the rest of the story. Click it again. Now you know the rest of the story. You know who that is? Paul Harvey. That's right. You know what he would do. Even when I was growing up, I remember listening to Paul Harvey. He'd be a feature on the station I listened to. And you'd hear this wonderful story, and then you'd get to the end, and then there'd be some break, and then, now, for the rest of the story. And that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. You know where we've been in this first sermon from Peter in Acts chapter 2, this first sermon preached, Peter has told us that this Jesus lived a real human life. He was the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, of the people of Israel. And they killed him. We all killed him. But God brought him back to life. And we've spent two weeks talking about that resurrection and all the different dimensions, the different angles we can consider the resurrection. And typically, that's kind of where we stop. He was both killed and then brought back to life. The death and the resurrection... Every Sunday when we come to the Lord's table, what do we say? This is the moment where we celebrate His death, burial, and resurrection. That's right. And that's kind of where we end things. But now, to the rest of the story. There's another part to the sermon. It's the climax of this first declaration about Jesus. It's that piece we might forget. It tells us about this one thing that makes all the difference for your life right here in 2021. There's this one thing, the rest of the story. Here it is. We'll pick up where we left off last week, Acts chapter 2. We pick up with verse 32. We'll go through verse 36. 36 ends the sermon. Peter says this, God has raised this Jesus to life and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see now and here. For David did not ascend to heaven. Yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and and Messiah. There it is. There's that one thing. There's the rest of the story. It's the thing that makes all the difference. Here Peter declares the ascension of Jesus. This isn't just the Messiah who died and came back to life. It is the Messiah who ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Now we're not used to celebrating the ascension. We celebrate Christmas. That's part of our church calendar. We celebrate Easter. That's kind of the big two for our church tradition. But among many Christians around the world and for centuries, they, they will also celebrate different pieces of the Christian story. They have different parts of the, of the calendar that they emphasize different parts of the Christian narrative. And one of those is Ascension Day. It's that day 40 days after the resurrection where they celebrate that on that day, Jesus ascended to heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Now the ascension matters because it's the moment where God establishes Jesus is king. 
It's the moment he takes his throne. It's a big moment. Because you can have a crucified Messiah who comes back from the dead. But if Jesus stayed on earth eating fish with the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it wouldn't do us much good. He had to ascend and take his rightful seat on his throne. Now the Jews were always looking for a Messiah to sit on David's throne. This was nothing new for the Jews. God had promised David long ago that he, God, would give David a man in his family line who would sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. So they expected that one day there would be a son of David to come and sit on a throne and rule the world. The famous passage comes from 2 Samuel 7. This echoing in the minds of the Jews. Even those Jews on that day listening to this first sermon. Here it is. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13. God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so they watched for that one Messiah to come, that one person, that one son of David to come and take his rightful seat on the throne. Maybe it would be Solomon. But Solomon messed up pretty good near the end of his life. Maybe it would be the next one. No, he was worshiping other gods on the high places. Maybe the next one. No, he also worshiped other gods. And you just went down the line of kings and over and over again, they failed. And now, in the first century, the Jews, under the oppression of the Roman Empire, are looking for the day when God would send the one, that king who would sit on David's throne, remove their enemies, vindicate his people, and rule from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. There would be one who would come. But they missed something about all that. They missed this really key detail about the Messiah. One scholar says it well, then we'll head over to Jesus and see what Jesus has to say about it. Take a look at what one scholar says. Here's what they missed. The Messiah would not just be David's son. He would also be David's Lord, one who shared God's throne as God himself. This one would not just be a human like any other human. He would be the perfect human. He would be the perfect Israelite. He would be the perfect son of David. And he would be God himself sharing God's throne as God himself. Peter quoting Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. It's quoted throughout Hebrews. It's quoted here. Peter quotes it later in his letter. Paul will quote it. It's alluded to when we see any reference to Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Psalm 110. That's the verse, that's the passage Peter's quoting here. But why would Peter pick up that psalm to quote in this sermon to talk about King Jesus, the ascended one? It's because Jesus had tipped them off that this psalm said everything that they needed to know about who Jesus was and how he would reign. If you remember, there was this moment just days before Jesus was crucified when he is teaching in the temple courts, and he gets in trouble with the religious leaders, and there's this one moment where he poses a question to them. Matthew records it this way. Matthew 22, here it is. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. 
Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Well, no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. You see what's happening there in Psalm 119. David, praying, speaking, David says to the God of Israel, I now, my God, the God of Israel, will now say to my Lord, that Lord is Messiah. He doesn't just call him, the God of Israel says to my son, he says it to my Lord. And there Jesus sees the key, that the one who will sit on the throne of David will be God himself. He will be David's Lord. And the Jews in that day and in centuries before saw this as figurative language, saw this as wrapped up in metaphor, but Jesus says, ah, David, speaking by the Spirit, was calling the Messiah his Lord. You see, the Messiah, the promised one, the one whose body would not see decay, he would sit at the right hand of God, sharing God's throne as God himself. It's all there. It was all there in Psalm 110. They just couldn't see it. And so here, Peter makes it very clear. This is, this is Jesus Jesus, both Messiah, promised one, one who would take the sins of the people, and also Lord, King, ruling right now at the right hand of the God of Israel. Both those in play. Now for the Jews, that'd make a, that'd make a real big difference. You're teaching them how to reinterpret, how to understand their scriptures the right way. But it just wouldn't make a difference for the Jews. It'd make a difference for the Romans too. Because the moment you say King Jesus, you've just said something about Lord Caesar. You see, in the Roman world, when good news went out into the empire, it was good news about who they thought was the divine son, Caesar himself. The gods had chosen Caesar to be their representative on earth, divine himself. And throughout the Roman Empire, there were temples where you could go and make your offerings to the emperor, lord of the empire. That day, when Peter stands and calls Jesus Lord, he has just declared Caesar is not. That's a big claim. It's a claim that will get you killed. You remember that Jesus himself caught flack for this so much that they killed him. It was the way that, the, that Pontius Pilate was able to justify in form, in part, the crucifixion. Because Jesus could be tried for sedition, treason. One claiming to be king, now Peter stands and declares, It is not Caesar who is Lord of the empire, it is Jesus who is King of kings, Lord of lords. One New Testament scholar makes this really clear. I like the way he does it. He comes at it from this angle. Here's what he says to summarize. He says, Emperor Nero did not throw Christians to the lions because they confessed that Jesus is Lord of my heart. You mind if I read that again? I want to make this just real clear because sometimes we just think about Jesus as Lord of my heart. I'm going to read that one more time. Emperor Nero did not throw Christians to lions because they confessed that Jesus is Lord of my heart. It was rather because they confessed that Jesus is Lord of all, meaning that Jesus was Lord even over the realm 
Caesar claimed as his domain of absolute authority. That's a big claim. That's a big claim. Some of you own land. Maybe. In the end, it will all go into the hands of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You're a steward of whatever you own. You know the President of the United States is really powerful. Not so much that he's bigger than King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Putin's really powerful over in Russia. Seems to be expanding that power pretty regularly. He's not King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There's one king. And the Romans would have found a problem with this. But as the message seeped out, people began to respond. And no doubt, there were many that rejected the message. Can you imagine coming into the United States and saying something like, there's another president. Now, I don't mean to get... I don't mean to bring in current events, but if you start saying there is another president or there was another election of, uh, result and you try to push your way through with that message, eventually you're going to come to a stop. You can't come in and declare another king and expect to rule with your message. Someone's going to take you out eventually. Someone will. And that's exactly what happened in the Roman Empire. Roman officials, Jewish leaders, they began to take out people who brought this message of a new empire, a new kingdom, a new king. And they'd put them in jail. They'd throw them up on a cross. They'd throw them in prison. They'd kill them. They'd lose their jobs. Over and over again, there was the rejection of the king that a new kingdom had arrived. But as the message went out, as the story was told, there were some that started to change. Some that moved to live a different kind of life. Now we're not going here this morning, but I want you to see preview for next week. Look what happens in the next verse in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2.37. You know, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I have no doubt there were some in the crowd that day that said, No. No, I will have none of this. And they began their journey to persecuting anyone that brought this message. But there were some that day that took the message and realized there was a new king. And they must do something. They just wanted to know what. What do we do next? You see how the Holy Spirit had gotten a hold of them. Something was changing. It happens again, Acts 19. Take a look. Love this. Acts 19, 17 through 19. Here's what happens when the message is preached here in Thessalonica. The day of the Lord was held in the name of who? The Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. This is actually in Ephesus, where a group who had practiced witchcraft, they hear the message of the new king. And they said, something has to change. We will bow to the new king. We will pledge allegiance to this king. And they went and they took their library of books and they burned them. Now, right after this passage, we are, Luke tells us how much money was burned that day. And we'll just summarize it this way. It was a lot. Tens of thousands of dollars worth of books. 
And why would you do that? Because when you pledge allegiance to a new king, you come under that kingdom and everything else falls to the wayside. And for them it meant they had to reject the witchcraft and the sorcery and they came to worship King Jesus. And it had financial implications for them. And then one last summary. Let's go to the, this last passage. That 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. Here it is. Paul records this. The believers in Macedonia and Achaia, they report what kind of reception you, you Thessalonians, you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. These are people who would go to the temple of Diana, the temple of Zeus. These are people who would worship at the temples. They would worship at the altar of Caesar. And yet when they heard a new king had arrived, a new king was reigning over the earth, they turned from those idols and they worshipped this Jesus. And it affected their family, their jobs, it affected their place in society. When you come to Jesus, everything changes. When you hear there is a reigning Lord over every part of life, even your life, everything changes. And as the early Christians came to understand all the implications of this ruler of the universe, they began to describe the many dimensions that this included. It's one thing to talk about him ascending and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Ah, but as the early Christians came to know him, I mean know him like you would know a friend. I mean know him because this is a relationship. As they came to know him and understand the implications of his kingdom, they began to write more and more about what all this meant. And Paul says it this way at one point where he describes some of the rich the richness of his kingdom, of his reign. He writes this, Ephesians 1. We'll go with this as our last main passage. First Ephesians 1, 20-23. God exerted. Are we dead? Okay. We are no longer live streaming. Who knows why? I don't know. Okay. That's all right. It's all right. The devil... There may be truth to that. Who knows? All right. Oh, catch it on the podcast. Here we are. God exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be, to be, head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Everything comes under his reign. There's no demon, there's no devil that doesn't and will not come under his authority. He will be exalted, his name above every name, Lord of lords, King of kings. Number one, champion. There are all kinds of other words we could use in English to describe who he will be. Everything comes under his reign. Now, all that's got to get on the ground for us. So there's got to be some application to all of that. There obviously was for these early believers. I mean, they're burning, they're burning books about sorcery. I mean, that is very practical. That's the kind of thing you call the fire partner out for. When you've got like a bonfire of books. 
That was very practical. So when you, when you get hit with the message of Jesus, something practical happens. So here's what I want to do. I want to ask this question. Here it is. This is the question I want to ask. Let's go big. Who is my king? Who or what do we pledge allegiance to above everything else? That's the question. Now listen, I, I, will, I, I have and will riff on this theme. This theme of you and I trying to be the king of the world. You and I thinking that we really are God. We are in control. But I imagine you tire of that sometimes. That's the easy, that's the easy path, and I'll take it in the future. But for this sermon, I don't really want to really press the pedal on hitting you there. I just want to assume we all have Jesus as king. Or at least you want him to be king. Let's just, I just want to assume the best of all of us. That all of us want Jesus to be our king. And that if we looked in into, everyday, into your everyday life, people would look and say, ah, that is a person who's trying to pledge allegiance to King Jesus. So let's just assume that. Let's assume that. I'm not, there's no guarantee that's actually the way you're living. But let's just assume it. So if that's the case, if it is the case that you and I have Jesus as king, we really recognize that we are not God, that you're not in control nearly as much as you think you're in control of, nor am I. Well, then that really begs the question, am I following King Jesus? Well, then that will beg another question, then what commands should we be following? There's a lot of them. There's a lot of things that our king told us to do. And so here we could extend the sermon for hours and hours and just pillage the New Testament for all the commands Jesus gave us and then say, are you following your king's orders? Well, we don't have time for that. So I just picked one. I just picked one. I just got one, one command I want to press on. And I want to see how are we doing there? Because we need to realize this isn't an option in his kingdom. If he is king with the authority, then when he gives the order, we don't have the option of saying, but if you only knew, if I could just explain this. No, I'm just going with one. Use many. One. One that I think can step on all of our toes. So let's drive it to a next step. Here's our next step. Our next step gets it all on the ground. Next step this week. Make practical decisions to love your enemies because that's what King Jesus said to do. You wondering where he said that? Well, you, knew, you know i got to just go ahead and quote it. It makes me uncomfortable. I hope it makes you uncomfortable. Here it is, Jesus. This is just Jesus. This is our King. Here's what he tells us. This is on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 44 through 46. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Ugh. This is a hard one. Like if we could have cut this one out, of the New Testament, I'd been just fine. Because it feels good to get together with other Christians, people that look like me, talk like me, people that I enjoy, 
That's easy. And I can chalk that up to being a hospitable person, someone from, uh, in whom the love of Jesus is flowing. That's why I would serve you dinner. That's why I would have you over for conversation. That's why I would go play a softball game with you. It's just because of the love of Jesus. It just so happens that I like all of you for the most part. And so that just happens to be really easy. And Jesus would ask me, well then, in what way are you different than a non-Christian, someone who lives outside my kingdom? They do that. You see here how difficult this one can be. This is where it gets on the ground for us. You like everyone in political office right now? I don't. But don't dare post mean and sarcastic things on social media about them. Hear me. You are a follower of King Jesus. King Jesus tells you to pray for them. Engage politically, please understand. But if you put anything on social media, make it thoughtful and not hateful. Now, unfortunately, I am not now being streamed through social media where that may have some real application. I imagine you're not doing that right now. You get the point? Be very careful with how we use our social media. That is an extension of us. Ah, but can I go a little, can we, get, can we just go a little more intimate? What about when you're with a family member or a friend that you are very comfortable with, vulnerable with, and you start talking about that person you don't like, and you slice them up and make yourself feel a lot better? Don't do that. Please understand that everything I'm saying right now, like it's coming right back at me. Like this is not like a you. I'm saying you, but it's a collective you, like a you that includes me. Be very careful how you talk about the people you don't like. This week, I talk about this often, but I, I, I think about it because it's so practical. This week, two times, I got behind people that drove very, very slow. And they cut in front of me and then drove very slow. And it was on 7th Street, so it wasn't even safe to like get around them. And then I have this fire department badge on the back of my car, so I'm real conscious of if, if someone would see me, I'm representing the fire department. And you know what I want to do. It's what you might want to do. I want to get right up on their bumper so they understand how slow they're going. Now, after it was done, I got out and told Mark, listen, man, you got to go faster. <laughs> Am I really? I'm still streaming. Oh, my. All right. Okay. All right. I'm still streaming. All right. Well, now everyone knows what I would say if they weren't here. Okay. But I'm being honest with you. And I'm being, I mean, seriously. So what I did is I backed off. And I said, I will not be the kind of person that gets right up against them because what if that was an elderly, I don't know who it was, honestly, I don't know if it was a man, woman, old or young, but what if it was someone who was just getting back on the street because they had, who had been in the hospital for days, now they had recovered and they were taking their first drive and they were being very cautious. I'll never forget bringing tests home from the hospital one time and I drove real slow. And I thought, man, everyone's going to get mad at me, but if they only understood. And so this week, in all of my righteousness, I decided I'd back up. And that was a real act of living under King Jesus. How you treat your employees, how you talk about family members who are wayward 
or frustrate you. I have those. All of that comes under the reign of Jesus. It is easy to talk about you, you who I like. It's another thing for me to start thinking about what this looks like under the reign of King Jesus for the people I don't like. And do I hang out with people that look different than me? Do I get to know people I don't like? Do I even try to understand? Often I don't. But my point is that if I am under the authority of King Jesus, it is not an option. I may feel angry and mad, but under His reign, I am under different orders. And it is not just my life. It is my life under His kingdom. And I will be held to account with how I follow this King. Ah, He's full of grace, there is no doubt. And full of forgiveness. But we must be people who are showing and representing our King. Please understand, in no way should we ever give ground on truth and justice. Never give ground there. But how we express this is a matter of how we live in the kingdom. So let's do that good work. Let's just not be mean or sarcastic. Let us not mock. And let's not get up on people's bumpers. That was for me. That was for me. All right. Let me pray for you. Father, help us as a people. Help us with those co-workers that we do not like or family members that annoy us or people in our town that are ungodly, who are wayward and are causing evil. Would you help us to move in a way both full of truth but also full of love under King Jesus? Help us to figure all of this out as a community, as a church. Would you convict us where we need convicting? We would be people who are strong and stand for justice, but we do it in a way that is full of love. May we treat people on our own house with gentleness and patience. I would be the first to say to forgive me for where I fall short, right in my own home. So we would be people that come under His authority. He is the one ascended. He is sitting at your right hand. He is reigning, and we come under His orders. He is king and commander. And so we follow. And, and this, and this message, just focusing on what that looks like for what it means to love our enemies. So help us in all of this. We pray it in the name of Him who is risen and ascended to the right hand. We pray it in the name of King Jesus. And together we say, Amen.